All glory, wisdom and honour are yours, Lord God Almighty. Because you are the one who created all things and by your will they came into existence. And we praise you, mighty King, because you have not abandoned your world to sin and to death, but that in Jesus and by his life and death and resurrection you have acted to reclaim your world, to reassert your will. And so, Father, we pray now as we uh, reflect on your word to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we pray that you would help us to understand more of the great achievements that the resurrection is and that you would raise our eyes to see your glory and your power and your grace put to work in him and that we go away from this morning full of hope because of the promise that the day is coming when you will be all in heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who loves a good home renovation? I'm sick of them, not many people. If you watch reality TV, you might say that we're obsessed with home renovations. We've got the block, we've got better homes and gardens, we've got grand designs, and a host of other reality TV programs that fuel our lust for home renovation. Everywhere you look, there are renovations in progress. But you don't have to live very long, do you? Or to look very hard to realise that it's not just the houses we live in. It's the world itself that's in need of serious renovation. The world itself is scarred by sin and marked by death, and you see that all over the place. And when I first married Lynette and I had the real privilege of partnering with some churches in the Philippines for a connection with our church. And they're in the northern part of the Philippines and part of that country that had been devastated by the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in 1991. Uh, and we got to know a young boy there whose name is Jerome, and we were writing letters to each other. Uh, and he wrote to us in some of the first letters about how his dad did that work. Uh, all of the agricultural land had been decimated by the eruption of the volcano, and so there was nothing for his dad to do, and so they were struggling to find the resources they needed to, to survive as a family. The next day came, and there was good news. His dad had scored a job at sea on a ship, uh, deep sea fishing, and so there'd be provision for the family. And the next letter came. And it's bad news. The ship had been lost. And his father was missing. And the next letter came. His father was confirmed dead. You don't have to live very long or look very hard to see that the world that we live in is in need of renovation. We live in a broken world the result of sin. Richard Balcom, writing in the year 2000, looking back on the century that had just been, said horror must surely be one of the most prominent features of 20th century history. You see, some of the brokenness that we see is seemingly random, but some of it is more directly caused by human sin. And he was writing about that latter part where he said, horror must be surely one of the most prominent features of 20th century history. In the period since 1914, We've seen the most bestial period in recorded history, in wars and genocide and political torture and state terrorism, in the two world wars and the Holocaust, in Stalin's reign of terror in Vietnam, in the killing fields of Cambodia, in Bosnia and Rwanda. Literally hundreds of millions have died. 
This, of course, he says, is far too little. We must add the millions whose deaths from starvation were preventable but not prevented. Those including many children still subjected to slave labour. The currently 22 million whom famine, war and oppression have made refugees. And we could go further and speak of the 22.9 million in sub-Saharan Africa, one in every 20 adults suffering from HIV AIDS. Of the 1 billion children living in poverty, nearly every second child in the world. Of the tsunamis that have wiped out thousands and made many more destitute. And so we could keep going. You don't have to live very long or look very far to see that the world in which we live is in serious need of renovation. And it's not just out there. It's in here too. Maybe not on that scale, maybe not to that extent, but if we went around the room, I'm sure we'd hear how many of us are there here, 100 people? We'd hear 100 stories of lives that are scarred by brokenness, of people who've lost their jobs, who've lost a child or a parent or a sister or a friend. We ourselves get sick and experience pain. And even the most beautiful things in our lives are marked with frustration and disappointment. This is the reality, isn't it, of life in a world that's scarred by sin and death. We live in a world that's in need of serious renovation. And when you look around at all that, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, isn't it? I'm sorry to start and touch a something over. <laughs> there's hope and it's coming. When you look around, you get the feeling that there's got to be more to the Christian faith than just the forgiveness of my sin. Doesn't it? There's got to be more to the Christian faith than just personal salvation. There's got to be more to God's plan for the world than what we see right now. The effects of sin in the world cry out that God's work is not finished yet. Because if this is it, then sin and death have won, haven't they? And God has lost. The world that he created, that he so intricately and beautifully and perfectly designed, is scarred all over the place. If this is all there is, then sin and death have won and God has lost. How do we respond to it all? What's a Christian response? We're going to get to the passage in a second, but I thought it might be helpful first to outline three unsatisfactory responses. You can see them there on the outline. The first unsatisfactory sub-Christian response is to say, we can save the world. This is putting our hope in politics and law and medicine and education. This is the attempt to save the world without God. I'll say this in a friend of mine who grew up in the church, but as she grew to become an adult, became increasingly frustrated with what she felt was the irrelevance of the church's message for the problems facing the world, the kind of problems I've just been speaking about. She studied law, she moved to London, she took a job with a firm that specialises in representing the weak and the marginalised, and she's working to save the world. And there's no doubt the work that she does, does real good. But in the process, she's all but abandoned the faith. She's given up on God. She's joined a host of others who are attempting through politics and education and technological advancement and scientific research and social reform and environmental activism to save the world. And you just can't do it. I've got more to say about all those things later. But for now, you'll notice none of those things will do the job. Well, what's the second approach? I've called it eat, drink and be merry. Weekend, holidays, sex and chocolate. I see this approach to the problems in our world uh, in our unbelieving friends from our kids' school and soccer club. 
Rather than face the challenges confronting our society and our world, many people concentrate on making life comfortable for themselves and for their kids. They've given up on any big hopes of saving the world like my friend who's gone to London and they've retreated into those small hopes. I'm looking forward to the weekend and holidays and sex and chocolate. They live by the motto, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, which is as characteristic of 21st century Australia as it was of 1st century crime. It's an unsatisfactory, unchristian response to the problems that we see in the world. The third one might be a bit more of a surprise. It's this, I call it going to heaven when I die, escaping from the broken world. I hear this kind of response uh, in Bible studies and from pulpits all over the place. We sing it in our songs. It's a would-be Christian response that says the world is sinking like the Titanic, the material universe, the creation has no place in God's plans for the future, and so the Christian hope consists in escaping from the world. What we're looking forward to is God taking our souls away from our bodies to another place, to heaven. So this world which is creaking under the effects of sin and death can be left to its own devices and go to ruin. And the corollary of that is that the only thing that matters really then is evangelism, of course, because that's the only way we can get people off the sinking Titanic and into the lifeboats of the church. And so everything else, this is almost the opposite of number one, uh, everything else, uh, all of our secular work, our agriculture, our engineering, our teaching, our medicine, our carpentry, is really just rearranging the deck chairs on Titanic, because it's going down anyway, and so those things are ultimately meaningless. What really matters is making sure individuals are saved so that they can go to heaven when they die and escape this broken world. None of those responses, I want to show you here in 1 Corinthians 15, none of those responses to the problems and the challenges facing our society and our world is a fully biblical response because none of them takes into account the difference that Jesus' resurrection makes. And the good news of this passage is that even though this world is broken, God is a renovator. In Jesus' resurrection, God has begun to reclaim his broken world. But his work is not finished yet. And so there's more to the Christian faith than personal salvation, more than what we see here and now. God's promise is nothing less that when Jesus comes, the dead will be raised and God himself will be all in all as the whole world is made new. I'm trying to catch that out here for you by looking at the past and the present and the future in point two, God's promise, the whole world made new. Let's look at the past first, Jesus' resurrection at the beginning and the guarantee. Look there at verse 20. In response to the Corinthian denials of the resurrection, Paul declares, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Here's the key and the beginning of God's answer to the brokenness in the world. It's the gospel, of course. It's Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He's the first fruits, Paul says. It's an image drawn from the temple uh, where the people of Israel in the Old Testament were commanded by God through the law to bring the first and the best of the harvest in offering as thanks to God as a pledge of the remainder of the harvest that was yet to come. Christ is the first fruits, Paul says. When we were growing up, uh, my dad's uncle, my great uncle, I think that is, 
uh, at a farm out here in Jewel, just on the road from here actually, where they were growing peaches. Uh, and we came out every year for five or six years when I was in, in primary school. And we come out in late November, early December. And the job at that time of year on the peach farm was to go down the rows of the peach trees and scour through the branches and look for the first ripe peach. And you'd spend, it felt like hours, it was probably only 20 minutes to spend. <laughs> so you'd spend hours uh, rifling through these branches and there'd be green peach after green peach after green peach after green peach. And I'd be going down this row and my brother would be going down that row and my sister would be going down that row and there'd be a competition to see who could find the first ripe peach. Uh, and we'd be spread out across the peach farm and then finally after hours and hours looking, somebody would cry out, I've got it! And they'd hold up and they'd pick the first, not a green peach, but an orange peach. And they'd have the joy then of taking a bite of that beautiful, juicy, ripe peach and letting the juice drip down their chin. <laughs> uh, and we'd all gather around and celebrate because you knew that we'd be coming back at the end of December and in the middle of January and at the end of January. And by that stage, there would be peaches dropping off the trees and we'd be trampling them with our feet and we'd be taking them home to grandmas, we'd be bottling them and turning them into jam and peach jelly and all sorts of stuff. And we'd be having peach fights because there'd be too many peaches. <laughs> and when you stood there in November, or early December, with that first peach in your hand. You could see all of that. Because that was the first fruit. It was the beginning and the sign and the guarantee of the great harvest that was coming. And Paul says Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. It's the beginning and the sign and the guarantee of the resurrection of the rest at the end. Look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Humanity in Adam dies, but humanity made new in Christ will be made alive. Just as Adam led humanity into ruin by his sin, so Jesus by his obedience, by his death and by his resurrection is leading us out. I used to work uh, as a uni job when I was studying uh, at the Sydney football stadium. It was a great job. I was an usher there. We got to see you two in concert, lots of football matches. Uh, and over the time I got to know some elderly women who turned up week after week whenever the Rabbitohs were playing. <laughs> uh, they were the die-hard fans who had red and green scarves, red and green blankets, red and green beanies that they themselves. And as I got chatting with some of them, one of them had actually painted her house red and green. For the rabbit, her, her whole life was tied up with this football team. And there's a whole bunch of them now. They used to sit in a row at the back uh, in their red and their green. And as I greeted them at the beginning, they'd go on with hope in their heart that uh, the rabbit would win today. And as I'd say goodbye to them as they were leaving, it turned south at the end of the match. You either see this row of elderly women with downcast faces, or you see these women you know, shouting with joy. And what amazed me was that without fail, they never said the team did a good job today. They never said the Rabbitohs won today. They never talked about the team that had played out there in the third person as somebody other than themselves. What did they say? We won! Woo! Oh, we lost. You know, so that their whole experience of the match was tied up with what was happening out there on the field by a champion or a team of champions who were playing in their face. And I used to say under my breath, you were just sitting there watching. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't dare say that out loud. 
just as Adam, our first champion, failed by disobedience and led humanity into sin, so Christ, the second Adam, the champion whom God has given us by his resurrection, leads us out of death and into the life of the age to come. You see, Jesus' resurrection was not just some kind of neat party trick. It was not simply a miracle to demonstrate God's power. It was a miracle, but it was so much more. Neither was the resurrection simply a proof of Jesus' divinity, as if being raised from the dead somehow proves that a person is divine. The widow's son at Nain was raised, Lazarus was raised, Jairus' daughter was raised. None of them were God. Now, the resurrection is more than either of those things. In raising Jesus bodily out of the dead, God won the decisive victory over sin and death. In the person of his Son, God took human flesh. He took one human being and went into death and through death and out the other side into a whole new kind of life, into a resurrection life which is free from sin and death. And in doing that, God reclaimed one human body. You see that? One part of the creation, Jesus' body, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that part of the creation went into death and through death and God ripped it out of death and brought it into a whole new kind of life on the other side of the grave. And Jesus is the first, the beginning and the sign and the guarantee of what God will do with the bodies of those who belong to him at the end when Jesus comes, and not just to the bodies of those who belong to him, but what God will do for the creation as a whole at the end. That's the past, Jesus, the first fruits. What about the present? Jesus now rules. Look at verses 25 and 26. Because we read there that Jesus' resurrection was not only his defeat of death, but the prelude to his enthronement following his ascension at the right hand of God. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. This is the present situation. What Paul has done here is weave together two psalms. Psalm 110, verse 1 and Psalm 8, verse 6. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, you know the verse Jesus quotes it in the Gospels when he's disputing with the Sadducees in the temple, uh, when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Paul says that psalm has now been fulfilled through Jesus' resurrection. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of God and he now rules at God's right hand over all things and he's ruling there waiting. Waiting for a future day when God will put all his enemies under his feet. He's reigning already and yet the enemies continue to rebel and the last enemy, especially, is death. Verse 26. The other psalm that Paul quotes here, verse 27, is from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. He has put everything under his feet. Uh, that psalm, you might remember in Psalm 8, or you, you may want to look it up, is really a celebration of the creation paradigm, of how God created Adam 
to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves along the ground. Way back in Genesis 1 when God created humanity to rule over the earth. And Paul quotes that psalm here to say Jesus is a second Adam. He's been given by God to do what Adam was always meant to do. And in having been raised from the dead and having ascended to God's right hand, he now rules like Adam was always meant to do over the entire creation. And yet he's still waiting for his enemies to be defeated and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 26. You see, Jesus rules at the right hand of God but his rule there won't continue forever. The job is not finished yet. He will reign there until the time comes for his enemies to be put under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And how will death be defeated? When the dead are raised, when Jesus comes. And so the day is coming when Jesus will rise from his throne at God's right hand and come again to raise the dead. Have a look at the future then in verse 23. Jesus will come, the dead will be raised. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Paul says, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes. Or maybe we could translate that by his coming. Those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Uh, Paul speaks here about Jesus coming, his glorious parousia. You might hear that language used. It's just a Greek word that stands behind it here. It's the word that was used for Roman emperors when they arrived in a province or in a city. And the whole town would go out to meet them with great pomp and ceremony in the Trochonfetti or whatever the ancient version of confetti was on them. And they'd have a ticket tape parade and escort them back into the city. This great entry of the king into the city. And Paul says, you think you've seen the ticket tape parade? You've seen, you think you've seen the entrance of a king into a city? Well, wait till you see this one. Wait till you see the parousia, the coming of Jesus. From heaven to earth, in glory, at the end, to raise the dead, to defeat his enemies. And so when Jesus comes, he will share with his, own, with his people his own victory over death. And by their resurrection... Death will be defeated utterly and finally. Have a look at the diagram there. I've tried to capture it. The little you are here sign in the middle. And on the left is the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits. And having been raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus reigns until his enemies are dethroned. And to the right, the resurrection of those who belong to Christ, which will occur when he comes. I want you to notice in passing here as well, verse 26, that death is an enemy. There's a strong tendency in our culture to speak of death as a friend. I maybe you've heard people talk about death as a doorway to the next room, uh, as the, the path to new life. There's a half-truth in that, but it's only a half-truth. A couple of years ago I had the privilege of conducting a funeral for a dear lady uh, from our church who died in her 40s. She suffered her whole life from bipolar disorder and a range of other health issues from which she finally died. And through the love of some of the women in our church, in the last years of her life, she was welcomed into the fellowship. She joined the church. 
and she joined Christ. On the day of her funeral, her unbelieving family spoke of her death as a relief. Uh, they've been caring for her for years. Uh, and, and so I can understand what they were saying. There's an element of truth in that. There is a sense in which death, especially after a long period of suffering like that, can bring real relief. Both to the sufferer from their suffering, uh, if they're in Christ, and to those who love them. I, I don't want to minimise that sense of relief. At the same time, here's a woman who God created, who God loved, who as far as she was capable of God enabled her, loved him back. And now she's dead. See, death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. It's not a, a companion to be embraced. It's a foe to be defeated. And so when Jesus comes and the dead are raised, God's final enemy will be defeated. Notice here also there's no vision of going to heaven when you die. Uh, that, that's the way we often talk. That's the way I grew up talking about it, but I've stopped talking like that anymore because I don't think it's how the Bible teaches us to talk about our future. There's no picture here of souls escaping this broken world and going to heaven. God's promise here is not that we will go to heaven and be with him, but that Jesus will come and be with us. Oh, you see the same kind of vision in Revelation 21 that informed one of the songs that we were singing just earlier. Uh, we get a vision of the new Jerusalem doing what? coming down out of heaven from God. Uh, you see it all over the place, in fact, in the New Testament. Uh, think of Philippians 3, 20 and 21, where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. You think you read that and you think, oh yeah, that's because we belong in heaven and we're going to go there when we die and our souls will be taken away. But keep reading, what does it say? Our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven and we are eagerly expecting a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the New Testament writers consistently point us not to the hope of what will happen to us as individuals when we die, but to the hope of what will happen when Christ comes in glory and raises the dead, when he comes to be with us. Of course, there is wonderful comfort in the truth that those who die in Christ are not lost. They are with him, at his side, in his presence. Uh, that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. There's a truth in that, a wonderfully comforting truth. It's just not the whole truth, and I want to say it's not even the main truth. The theologians call that the intermediate state. Uh, it, it's kind of one of those clumps in theological titles, but it does capture something. It's an intermediate state. It's not the final picture it's not the great hope, which is the coming of Christ from heaven to earth in glory at the end to be with us to raise the dead. So there's a striking vision in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, you might remember it of the souls of those who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus. They're under the altar, they're in the heavenly throne room. You think, what could be better than that? And then you see what they're doing. They're crying out, How long, O Lord? faithful and true, until you judge the earth. You see, they're in heaven with God. They're in the intermediate state. But they, like us, are longing for the end when Jesus will come and raise the dead. That's the focus of the biblical hope. Not on the individual and what happens to us at death, but on the day of God's great and final victory. And that only makes sense, doesn't it? I often like to think of creation as like God's masterpiece. I mean, think of God as a master artist. And creation is this beautifully intricate, wonderfully designed, 
masterpiece that he's put together and, and, and hung up, uh, if I can put it like that, to display his glory and his wisdom and his power, hung up for, for all to see, to demonstrate his wonder. And what have sin and death done? They've come into God's world and they've thrown black paint all over this masterpiece and they've taken out their knives and they've slashed it and they've tried to burn it and destroy it. Now if God comes and looks at his broken masterpiece, hanging up on the wall there, slashed and covered in paint, and says, oh, it's gone too far, nothing I can do with that, I'll have to chuck it out, picks it up and throws it away in the bin. Who's won? Who's won? Sin and death, right? They've destroyed God's masterpiece. But the resurrection teaches us that God is not going to pick up the creation and throw it out because he is committed to the world that he made and the people that he loves. And Jesus' resurrection is the sign and the promise and the guarantee, the first fruits of what God will do when Jesus comes in raising the dead, in reclaiming his world, in making it new. God is a renovator. And so we look finally at verse 28, where Paul says, When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. That's a vision of the final day. The day, Paul says, when God will be all in all. It's hard to imagine what that day will be like, isn't it? But we've got to let passages like this and others in the scriptures fire our imagination. A day is coming when God will be everything to everyone, everywhere. Is that what all in all means? It's got to be something like that, doesn't it? When his will will be done perfectly on earth. As he taught us to pray, not just in heaven, but on earth. Where there will no longer be any rebellion. Where there will be no violence or hatred or lust or greed, no sin. When cancer and dementia and AIDS will be destroyed and all because God himself has come to dwell with his people to wipe away every tear from their eyes in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. In cashing this phrase here from Paul out, all in all, I picked up some other language you might have noticed from across other parts of the Bible, and particularly that language of new heavens and new earth I find particularly helpful. It's there in Isaiah 65, it's there in Revelation 21, it's there in 2 Peter 3. And often we hear that kind of language, new heavens and new earth, and our minds go straight to a replacement model. Well, there's the old heavens and the old earth, that's where we currently are, and they've been ruined by sin and death, and so they're going to be done away with. And God will bring in the brand new shiny model, the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not what God did with Jesus in his resurrection, is it? It wasn't one body that went into the grave and another one that came out. It was the same body that went into the grave that God raised from the dead and we're about to see tomorrow morning that Jesus' resurrection is the model for our resurrection and the model for the resurrection of the entire creation. I find it helpful to think about a shack in Lewisham that some friends of ours bought a few years ago. Three bedroom place, um, paint peeling off the walls, dodgy old carpet, Overgrown backyard. They paid 750 grand for it. That's what they do in Sydney, in, in Lewisham, three bedrooms. And when they first showed me these shacks that they bought for such an exorbitant price, I, I didn't pay this, but I thought, what have you done? What a waste! Uh, and then I didn't see them for a couple of months. 
I went back to their shack in Lewisham and they ripped up the old dodgy carpet and they polished the floorboards and they scraped down the walls and they painted them. Uh, and they opened up the whole back, they knocked down a wall and created this great big space out the back. And they got the backyard under control and had the landscapes. And they put a new facade on the house. And I walked into the house and I said to my friend, you got a new house. And he did. But he didn't. It, it, was, the whole, it was the old house made new. The old house renovated. The old house brought through to its fulfilment and its completion. The old house with all of its latent potential brought out. It was a new house but an old house made new. And we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. That's the hope, that's the promise when God is all in all. Everything to everyone, everywhere. And his will is done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it look like to live in hope of the day when God will be all in all? To live in hope of the final resurrection, to live in hope of a world made new. Well, to begin with, it means holding on to the gospel by which you're being saved and holding it out to others is the only sure ground of hope in the face of sin and suffering and death. We'll talk about that this morning. Along with that, it also means living lives of humble, patient, cross-shaped, Jesus-like service and obedience in our bodies, giving ourselves up for others, trusting that our labour in the Lord is not in vain. We're going to talk about that more tomorrow. In addition to those two things, though, it means anticipating the new world in whichever part of God's world that he has put us. Let me give you a picture and then try and flesh that out a little bit for you. You might remember uh, the uh, Narnia series from C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you've read the book, you've seen the movie or both. We've just been reading the books again with our kids. Uh, and in The Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, the second book in the series, there's this beautiful scene where the children enter Narnia. And you remember Narnia has been cast, is under a spell that's been cast by the wicked white witch and the whole place is dark and drab and grey and covered in snow. There's death everywhere. But as the children travel along with the beavers chasing after the white witch with her henchmen dwarves, they begin to see some signs that the long winter is finally on the way out. They look around and the snow is beginning to melt. And they start seeing patches of green opening up in between the white snow that's everywhere. And they start hearing birds singing. And they start hearing water flowing. And they start hearing flowers coming up, uh, growing through the, uh, up through the snow. And the clouds part and blue sky appears for the first time in, in whoever, you know, how knows long? Who knows how long? Uh, and then finally, the witch's dwarf gets it. Remember the scene? Uh, she says, what's happening here? It, it's a thaw. And he says to her, no, this is no Thor, white witch. This is spring. This is Aslan doing. And there's a beautiful picture there of this old broken world, burdened under sin and death, coming alive again. And Paul says, that's what's happening to you right now by the gospel. You are being saved. Or in other language, in 2 Corinthians, in the second letter he writes to this same church, in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, right there. So you should sometime this weekend eyeball somebody else uh, around this camp, look them in the eyes, because what you're looking at when you do is new creation. You're looking at the spring, the beginning of the world made new. God is at work here and now already through the gospel, by his spirit, 
in the church as we hold out the good news, as he grasps people into Christ and makes them members of his body, the new creation is advancing. The power of Jesus' resurrection is being put to work, looking forward to the day when Jesus comes and the dead will be raised. And so as we gather as God's people in church, we gather as anticipation, signs, outposts of the new creation. That makes church a seriously joy-filled business, doesn't it? In the way that we love each other, the way we serve each other, the way we care for the weak amongst us, the way we welcome sinners, the way we call on each other to obedience, we're anticipating already, here and now. We're getting ready for what the whole world will be like when Jesus comes. As we're faithful in our marriages, as we forgive the sins of those who sin against us, as we're generous with our money, the world will look at us and say, gee, you're weird. (laughs) And we'll look back at them and say, yeah, but this is the way God's designed us to be. And as they keep looking longer, they'll go, gee, you're weird, but there's there's something right about how you're living. It's weird, but gee, it's good. Can people look into your life and see that and say that kind of thing? Uh, we, we, Lynette and I had a, we were doing our tax a few years ago and we had this guy doing our tax uh, and we are not particularly generous by any stretch of the imagination of something we really struggle with but we do give some of our money away uh, because the Lord commands us to. And this guy's doing our tax and he says, why, why are you giving all your money away? You're crazy. Uh, he just couldn't fathom it. He wouldn't get his head around it. And we said, well, this, this is actually how God made us to live. Generosity is the way of life. And it's the way of the future. It's the way things will be when Jesus comes, when sin and death are no more. So let's start getting ready for it now. Let's live the future in the present. As the church gathers together, we're little pockets of the new creation. So let's live like it. But then even more than that, as we spread out during the week, as we scatter, there are opportunities for us also to implement the resurrection or to anticipate the time, to get ready for the time when God will be all in all. Because the whole world is God. Because there's not one square inch of the world over which Jesus doesn't say, that's mine. Because our hope is not ultimately to escape from this world to go to some other place, but for Jesus to come and raise the dead and make things new. We need to bring his rule to bear right now in this world wherever God gives us opportunities. I want to ask you, where has God put you? Think about your home, think about your workplace, think about your community place, think about uh, your role in government if you have one, think about the companies that you're part of. Wherever we are, we need to be asking ourselves this question, we need to help each other ask this question, what would this part of God's world look like if Jesus was acknowledged as Lord? Uh, School teachers, when you're disciplining, disciplining your kids, what would that process look like if Jesus was acknowledged as Lord by all the teachers in your school and everyone who had say over this normal disciplinary process in your school. Uh, accountants, as you're balancing the books, uh, ask yourself this question, what would that look like as you're crunching the figures uh, and as you're, you're reporting? Uh, what would that look like if Jesus was acknowledged as Lord over that whole process? Are there things that would change? Are, are there elements in the culture of your work or of the clubs that you're part of or even elements in the culture of your home that are out of step with the kind of values that we see expressed by Jesus and by the apostles in the New Testament, the kind of values 
of God's kingdom that will rule when Jesus comes. And when you see things that are out of step, bring them back into line. Now that's hard, isn't it? Because especially if you're working in a place where most of the other people don't believe in the Lord and don't accept those values as the better way, you've got to make an argument, don't you? You've got to make, make, make an, a, a gentle argument that this is a better way, because this is the way God designed us to be, and there's actually more life. There's more, it, it's better business for us to do it this way, the way that Jesus designed life to be. Are you always going to win that argument? No. Uh, are you going to win that argument sometimes? And then six months later, it'll all be undone. Yes. Does that mean you give up the fight and just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, I'll retreat into church because at least everyone agrees with you there and we can do things God's way in church? No. There's a day coming when Jesus the Lord will descend from heaven and raise the dead and make the world new. And we've got to live now in anticipation of that day. Will our work bring about that new creation? Can we kind of construct the new world through our own labours and our own efforts? Absolutely not. That's God's work. Only he can do it when Jesus comes. But can we anticipate? Can we get ready for? Can we put into action as much as we possibly can as we look forward to that day, the kind of values that will, be, that will abound when the kingdom comes? Yes, of course we can and we must. It's hard work, isn't it? When I was a school teacher, I was teaching ancient history and religious education. It was in this school that I was telling you about this morning where they'd lost it off. Uh, the religious education program for Year 7 was actually not bad. They just took the kids through the office. But they stopped at Jesus' death. And I said to my boss, how can we teach the kids the life of Jesus without doing the resurrection? And he said, I just don't really like that bit. It makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> he, was a, he, he identified as a Christian, but he, you know, he didn't know the gospel. And so I put the argument, I said, this is classic Christianity. This is what the church has been teaching for thousands of years. This is clear in the scripture. If we're going to claim to be teaching the kids Christianity, we've got to teach them about the resurrection of Jesus. He said, all right. He let me rewrite the program. We rewrote the program. I left the school a year later. I was chatting to one of my work colleagues. Six months after I left, they'd gone back to their old program. That's what it's going to be like. Will we bring in the new creation by our efforts? No. But can we anticipate the day? Yes, we can and we must. We've got to point the way forward. We've got to set up flags that say, this world belongs to God. And when unbelievers ask us, why we do it that way? We can tell them the story about God's great love for his world that led him to send his son who suffered and died and rose again to save us. Come with us, we can say, because this is the way of the future. I'm labouring this point because I think it's important. Sometimes those of us who are called to preach and teach the gospel have been guilty of undermining all of this by saying that really the only things that matter are what we do in and through church. The world's like the Titanic. It's thinking, and so we've got to get people off the Titanic through evangelism into the right uh, lifeboats of the church so that they can go to heaven when they die. So the only things that really matter are evangelism and Sunday school and Bible study and prayer. I, I don't know if you've come across that kind of argument or you felt that kind of vibe. But it's just not true, is it? Because what you do in the boardroom and what you do in the bedroom is every bit as spiritual as what you do in Bible study. What you do on the footy field is every bit as spiritual as what you do in fellowship. 
What you do on Monday morning when you go to work is every bit as spiritual as what you do on, in church on Sundays. You worship the Lord and encourage the people and hear his word. Uh, because God created us to live for his glory in all of our lives. And so that's why Paul can say to the Colossians slaves in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Why? Because you are serving the Lord. Even when you're a slave, being told what to do and being given your task. Great reformer Martin Luther put this really well in, in one of his memorable quotes uh, where he said, speaking at the time of the Reformation uh, where Roman Catholicism was the dominant religious system, uh, priests were everywhere, he himself had been a priest. Uh, he said, the milkmaid scrubbing the floor in the barn pleases God just as much as the priest offering mass in the church. Why? Because God loves clean floors. Is the answer? Luther all over you see his point, right? When Jesus comes and the dead are raised and the world is made new, the whole creation will be redeemed and restored. And so our work now in anticipating that matters. The gospel has to be at the heart and centre. It's the soul of all that we do because it's by this gospel we are being saved. But if the gospel is at the centre, and precisely because the gospel is at the centre, it's got to infuse and inform everything we do in all of life, everywhere else. There's no doubt this world is in need of serious renovation. But the gospel tells us the good news that God is a renovator. When you see that, you'll understand that in Jesus' resurrection, God has begun the great work of making everything new. And so you can press on with serving him even in the midst of frustration and pain because you can see that even now God is at work through the gospel to make things new. Jerome wrote us another letter a few months after his father was lost. Dear Auntie Nettie, he said, he was corresponding mainly with Lynette. Hello, how are you? I hope you are strong in our Lord Jesus. As for me here, things are hard. I miss my father and my mother is very upset. She has to work every day in the markets so that we can have some food to eat. But I am always praying to Jesus. He will take care of us. He will make it right. I don't know if Jerome was eight or nine at the time. I don't know if he'd read one since he I don't know if he had the chance to theologise about this, but what he knew was that God had raised Jesus from the dead and he was the first fruits, the beginning, the sign, the guarantee that God will make it right. And so we can press on with serving him, even in the midst of frustration and difficulty and pain, even in a world that is broken. Because the God whom we worship in Jesus is in the business of making things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to you for your great power that you put to work in raising your Son, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. And we praise you that his resurrection was not just some isolated event, but the first fruits, the beginning and the sign and the guarantee of the great harvest to come. And so we thank you, Father, for the promise of our own resurrection in him at the end and even of the resurrection of this old and tired world when Jesus comes. And so we pray, Father, that as we look forward to that day, you would make us people who are faithful, 
in holding on to the gospel, in holding it out to others, and in so ordering our lives in every sphere, at work, at home, in our sports clubs, uh, all over the place. So ordering our lives that people can't help but notice that we believe that Jesus is Lord, that this world belongs to him, and that, when the, and that the day is coming when he will fully and finally claim it for himself. And so we pray, Father, that you give strength for that task, and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.